Today, we have a special guest with us. You know, our desire and what we're always going to do here is preach the gospel. At the same time, we are going to seek to, to preach messages that help us, how to under, help us understand how to live biblically in the world in which we live. As I always say to us, we have to study the Bible and we have to study the culture in which we live. If we only study the Bible, we are more likely to see our uh, Bible through our culture lens because we are bathing in culture and we don't even know it. When we study our culture and we study our Bible, we are going to be more effective at understanding the culture through our biblical lens. And we are always going to do that. We have a lot of challenges today related to creation and evolution and the authority of scripture. Is scripture just a bunch of fairy tales and stories that somebody made up along the way? Can we trust it? Are we able to live life in such a way uh, that comes from the Bible, this book that's thousands of years old? And our contention is yes. You can trust the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you can trust what it says and you can understand how to live differently. So it's the gospel, but then all the teachings of scripture and how it is that we live that out. Uh, today we have a gentleman by the name of Jay Siegert. Uh, Jay is the founder uh, and director of the Starting Point Project. You see his materials in, out there in the lobby. One of the things you're going to hear about today uh, is his tours down the Grand Canyon. And my wife and I are like, we are doing that. We're not going to be able to do it this year, but probably next year. For four days, travel through the Grand Canyon through the, with the, on the Colorado River and on the various you know, overlooks and so forth and so on, understanding uh, Scripture and the Bible and what's happened in, in our world. Jay holds degrees in physics and engineering technology. Uh, if you were not able to be with us Friday night or Saturday at all, really want to encourage you to go back online and take some of those things in. Uh, it was like drinking from a fire hose yesterday, trying to understand, uh, and then there's this, and then there's this, and radiocarbon dating, and I'm like, okay, you know, I need to go back and, and watch that myself, because he addresses all the critical issues in these messages that the world puts forth that are supposedly contrary to the Bible. And what Jay does is goes back and says, you know what, actually, when we read the scripture, uh, we are, the, the Bible and science actually really, really, really do go together. They really do go together. Uh, he's been teaching for 38 years. He's been recently elected the president of Logos Research Associates, which is the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and biblical creationists in the world. Um, and so uh, I'm going to introduce, come on up here, Jay. We're glad that you're with us. All right, welcome, Jay Siegert. <laughs> Thank you. Lord, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for Jay. Thank you for the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding uh, that you have given him over these years and his passion to help followers of Jesus to understand your word, the authority of it, and how it perfectly, seamlessly fits with everything that we see in science. And Father, we, I also uh, am grateful for his passion for, for those who are seeking, for those who don't believe anything that he's going to say today, and his gracious, humble spirit with which he engages them in a powerful, powerful way. And Father, we give him to you today, and we give these next few minutes to us. Teach us uh, and bless us. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks, Jay. Well, good morning. It is certainly an honor to be here with you. I have a very powerful message. Uh, James 1.19 says, be slow to speak 
but it doesn't say speak slow. So I'm going to go fast. There's a lot I'm going to cover, so I apologize ahead of time for that. But it's a very important topic. The, the topic is basically how do we know the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And I'll give you my background really, really quickly. Some of you already heard it if you were here Friday night or Saturday. But I was raised in a Christian home, and I always say you can clearly tell that that is a Christian home. And I went to public schools all the way through high school. When I graduated, I went to uh, Christian College, John Brown University in Arkansas to study mechanical engineering. Uh, I did get a degree there, but then I became more interested in physics, and John Brown didn't have a physics major, so I left there. I went back to Wisconsin, where I live, and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get my degree in physics, and that's when my world changed quite a bit. Going from a small Christian college, where my engineering professors opened up every day in prayer, to a large state university, where my physics professors didn't open up in prayer. I mean, maybe they forgot, but... Um, <laughs> They were telling me that everything I believed was wrong, and that made me very uncomfortable to be surrounded by these PhD scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed, found out later they didn't, but I realized myself, first time in my life, I realized I know what I believe, I just don't know why. I couldn't defend the Christian worldview, so God put it on my heart to start looking into things, so I've been looking into things for 38 years now, and about 17 years ago, felt called into full-time ministry doing this, founded the Starting Point Project. I was also invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. It's the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and creationists. The founding member, Dr. John Sanford, he's from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented something called the gene gun, and it inserts genes into the DNA Brilliant scientist. He was an atheist. Now he's a very strong Christian, very humble, godly man. Dr. John Baumgartner, he's a PhD geophysicist. He happened to build the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Just off the charts brilliant. Even secular geologists will use that model to see how plates move. So those, those two guys, myself and a few other board members, and I always say as brilliant as these guys are, and they're really smart, if they were here this morning with us, they'd be the first to admit out of all six board members, I am the tallest. So, <laughs> pretty proud about that. Actually, just a few months ago, they voted me to be president, so now I'm president of the group, and I've lost all respect for them if they want me president. So, <laughs> Anyway, just cool to be hanging around these guys, but back to this talk. Again, we're going to cover a lot in a very short period of time. Um, scientific evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. As I travel around, I ask Christians this question, why are you a Christian? And they'll often say, well, because I believe the Bible. Well, that makes sense. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, because I'm a Christian. <laughs> why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because I'm a Christian, and round and round. But how do you know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? That's where it gets pretty quiet. It's like, I, I mean, I just know. I mean, it says it is. It's what I believe. I mean, I feel it. Great. Why should anyone else believe it? Because you feel it, including your own children and grandchildren. <laughs> if we don't go any further than this, we pretty much just have a blind faith. So we're going to be dealing with this quite a bit. How do you know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Again, that's where you get the deer in the headlights saying, like, I, I, I don't know help. So the rest of this talk is going to be addressing that. And I have a portion of a radio interview I'm going to play next. It's about maybe 90 seconds. Here's the background. This program is hosted by an atheist. It's his program. The caller is a pastor. 
and they're talking about the existence of God. The first voice you hear, a nice radio voice, that's the atheist. Second voice is the pastor. So we'll play it and then we'll discuss it. So you disagree because you're, you're convinced, probably because of Romans 1, that everybody knows that God exists. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you believe Romans 1? Uh, because it's the Bible. Okay, why do you believe the Bible? Uh, I wasn't necessarily prepared for that particular question. Um, you're a preacher and you're not prepared for a question on why you believe the Bible? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just, I mean, this, this to me is like the, the basics. What, what, why would anybody believe, why, would I, why should I care what the Bible has the, to say? The reason, the reason why I'm not prepared for that particular question is because you didn't answer what I had to say. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 I might have missed a question. What was the question? Because all I heard was you saying you disagreed. Uh, I was trying to make a point to you. It wasn't necessarily a question. My point was... Well, then how can you accuse me of not knows. answering your question if you didn't ask a question? Uh, your I'll point is that everybody knows that God exists, and I don't agree with that. And I'm asking you to prove that it's true. It's not about proving that it's true. You're, then, you then you we can are never not, prove that it's true. It's then we are in an impasse. And thank you for acknowledging that you can never prove it's true, which demonstrates it's irrational. I'm going to have to ask you to call back because we've run out of time. Okay, let's close in prayer. <laughs> That'd be pretty depressing. I actually think that atheist host is very gracious. And I think most pastors would have a better response, especially the pastors here. But here's a bigger question. What would your answer have been had you called in the radio program and the host asked you that question? Again, that's where you get the deer in the headlights, like, I don't know, help. Okay, that's what the rest of the presentation will be, is what should our response be when someone asks an incredibly reasonable question? If I was a, an atheist, first thing I'd want to know is, how do you know God exists and how do you know the Bible is the inspired word of God? And most Christians just fumble around with that as if they've never thought about it before. That is not good at all. Before we get any further, I have a quiz for you. I'm going to put a passage up on the screen, see if you can figure out where it's found. And the Messiah cometh forth uh, in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil. Now, some people say, oh, that's, that's Isaiah, right? No. Jeremiah? No. That's not Psalms. Is it? No, no. Here's the answer. Second Nephi chapter 2, verse 26. You're like, second what? It's the Book of Mormon. It's like, oh, that's weird. Here's a question for you. How do you know the Book of Mormon is not the inspired Word of God? Well, it's not. How do you know it's not? Because the Bible is. How do you know the Bible is? Because I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. What about the Book of Mormon? It's not. Why is it not? Because the Bible is. You know, it's just round and round. You know, <clears throat> the Mormons think it's an inspired Word of God right on the cover. It says, another testament of Jesus Christ. It's given to them by the angel Moroni and written down in some golden tablets. Fascinating story. I'm not here to focus on Mormonism. There's no shortage of religious books out there. Here's just a small sampling. How do you know which of those are the inspired Word of God? Maybe they all are. Maybe none of them are. Maybe just two. Which two? How would you know? Good question. There was a debate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison a few years ago. A friend of mine called me up and said, hey, do you want to go to this debate with me? I said, sure. The topic was, would the world be better off without religion? I said, yeah, I'll go with you. But I said, I would never be part of that debate. He said, why not? I said, because I'm not a religious person. 
So what are you talking about? You're traveling around the world talking about God and Jesus and the Bible and creation. Here's why I say that. I think religion is man's idea of God. The reason we have so many different religions is there are so many different people. They all have their own ideas of who God is, what he is, why he created us, and what happens to us when we die. I really don't have time to find out what everyone else thinks about God. On the other hand, I think the Bible is God's idea of God. (laughs) And that fascinates me to no end. So while I say I'm not a religious person, I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Now, I realize Christianity is considered to be one of the world's religions, so I guess in that sense, fine, I guess I'm a religious person. But I like to make the distinction between man's idea of God and God's idea about himself, which makes it even more important for us to know. How do we know that this really is God's idea about himself and not just another made-up book by a bunch of people? Well, how many of you have a book at home that was actually signed by the author? A few of you, the rest of you can buy my books, I'll sign them. Um, But it's kind of cool. You can get it out, show them, yeah, I I met the author. Wouldn't it be cool to have an autographed copy of the Bible? (laughs) Kind of makes your head spin thinking about it. I think we do. I think God's signature is all over his word. But how would we know? Well, there are four tests that you can apply to any writing out there to see if it shows evidence of actually being inspired by God. These are not special Bible tests. These are tests you can apply to any book that's out there. We have internal consistency. If the book you're looking at, whatever it is, if it contradicts itself, that's good evidence God didn't write that. He wouldn't do that. Then we have historical accuracy. If the book you're looking at gets history wrong, that's good evidence God didn't write that. He would know history. Then we have prophetic uh, accuracy. If the book you're looking at makes predictions and they've been proven false, that's good evidence God didn't write that. He would know the future. And then we have scientific accuracy. If the book you're looking at Make statements that can actually be tested by science, and it's been proven false, and we can all see that. That'd be pretty good evidence God didn't write that, because God would know science. With the time we have, we're just going to focus on this last one, which is also called scientific foreknowledge. And here's the point. The Bible was written a long time ago. Old Testament, roughly 1500 to about 400 B.C. New Testament, roughly about 40 to 100 A.D., long before we had microscopes and telescopes. But scientists are discovering things in the Bible, and they're saying, wow, they were actually right about that. But they couldn't have known those things back then, and that's true. There's no way they could have known those things, but it's in there. This is evidence that God was telling them what to write, scientific foreknowledge. But then people say, ah, no real scientist believes the Bible. Um, Interesting statement. What they don't know, the truth is, most major areas of science were founded by Bible-believing Christians. If you'd like a few examples, I brought a few along. (laughs) Antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus, chemistry, computer science, electronics, electrodynamics, electromagnetics, fluid mechanics, galactic astronomy, gas dynamics, genetics, (laughs) hydraulics, hydrostatics, oceanography, optical mineralogy, paleontology, pathology, physical astronomy, stratigraphy, thermodynamics, thermokinetics, vertebrate paleontology, and the scientific method, all founded by Bible-believing Christians. Anyone who says no real scientist believes the Bible, they don't only not understand science, they don't even know history. This is where science came from. It was birthed out of the Christian community. Science owes its origins to Christianity. Further truth. Belief in evolution is not only not required to do science, it gets in the way of doing science. Here's one example, something called vestigial organs. These are things that are supposedly left over in our body. They're not really doing anything. They used to, through earlier stages of evolution. 
Here's a quote from one of the leading evolutionists, University of Chicago, Jerry Coyne. We humans have many vestigial features proving we evolve. The most popular is the appendix. Our appendix is simply the remnant, remnant of an organ that was critically important to our leaf-eating ancestors but is of no real value to us. In fact, scientists used to have a list of 86 things in your body that don't do anything. It was actually used at the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, 1925, as evidence of evolution. Well, scientists have studied that list and dwindled it down a little bit, <laughs> yeah, down to zero. <laughs> They found a use for every single one of those things, including the appendix. It's part of the immune system. Can you live without your appendix? Yes, you can. Some of you here might not have your appendix anymore. You can also live without your arms. doesn't mean they don't have a use. <laughs> Doctors are very hesitant now to take your appendix out. If it's going to burst, yeah, you might need to get it out. But otherwise, no, let's leave it in there because it's doing something. But it was belief in evolution that got them just rip it out. It's useless part of evolution, whereas a creationist would say, wait a minute, we don't fully understand this yet, but hold on, we think it was designed by God. It drove better science. Another example, junk DNA. When scientists were looking at DNA, it seemed like only 2% of our DNA did anything. It coded to make proteins that carry out all the functions in our body. The other 98%, they said it was useless junk. While they've studied it further, now they realize the 98% they were calling junk it's more complex than the 2%. It's instructions, telling the 2% what to do. It is blowing them away how complex it is. And yesterday I gave a talk on DNA. Again, scientists are just amazed how complex this thing is. Here's a quote from an evolutionist. He said, the failure to recognize the implications of the non-coding DNA, that's what they were calling junk, it will go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology. Big, big mistake to ever call that junk. But it was an evolutionist basically said, just write it off, it's junk. Creationists would say, we don't know this yet, but we need to study it because it was designed by God. But then people say, yeah, but the Bible's not a science textbook. I would completely agree with that. It's not a science textbook, and I'm glad it's not, because then it would be harder to understand, fewer people would read it, and more importantly, it would have to be updated and corrected constantly like science textbooks. Even though this is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be corrected and updated. Very amazing. But what the Bible does for us is it provides a framework through which we can understand science. Because guess what? Facts don't speak for themselves. They never do. You need a framework, a worldview, a starting point, which is our ministry, the Starting Point Project. You need that to look at facts and interpret them. And the Bible gives us the only framework that really works consistently to properly understand science. For example, the Bible does talk about astronomy. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God is the one who created this universe, and his fingerprints are all over it. But the secular astronomers will say, look up in the sky. See those swirling gases over here? It's the birth of a star. It's just beautiful. You're seeing the birth of a star. You know what they're seeing? Swirling gases. Yeah, but you've got to understand, gravity will, will pull the particles together to form a star. Gravity wants to pull them together. I know the formula for it. But the closer the particles get together, the more gas pressure you have. And gas pressure is much stronger than gravity. They, they won't pull together. Okay, that's true, but what happened is a star over here exploded, and that force pushed those gases together. 
doesn't really work that well, but nice story. I have a question. Where did this star come from that exploded? Well, you see, that was swirling gases, and a star over here exploded to push that one together. I got another question. You have any idea what it might be? Where did that star come from? They can't get the process started. The laws of physics mitigate against it. Then we have Jeremiah 33, 22. As a host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of sea measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant. Jeremiah, writing over two and a half thousand years ago, said the stars are uncountable. That probably made no sense to him. He could look up at the night sky and see pretty much the same stars we see, which is about 3,000. From any point of the planet, you can see about 3,000 stars. That's a lot of stars, but it's not uncountable. Why would Jeremiah look at a countable number of stars and say they are uncountable? Well, today we know better. Secular astronomers say, I don't know, 10 trillion trillion stars. We don't know how many there are, but it's massive. It could be something like that. That's uncountable. Yeah, just like Jeremiah said when he didn't have a telescope. Today we have telescopes. The newest one is James Webb, uh, but we have also had the Hubble telescope for a long time. Secular astronomers wonder about the universe. Is it pretty much the same everywhere we look? Or are there areas with lots of stars and galaxies and other areas that are empty? So they took the Hubble telescope and focused it on one tiny speck of the sky, one twenty-four millionth of the whole thing. And they left the aperture of the telescope open for a number of days. This is called the Hubble Deep Field. To see if anything develops. Looks pretty dark. What, what might be there? This is what developed in that spot. 3,000 stars. But those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. 3,000 galaxies, each of which probably has 100 billion stars in it in one area of space. That's 124 millionth of the whole thing. Then they have the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. This is 132 millionth of the whole night sky. They discovered five and a half thousand galaxies, each of which has probably 100 billion stars. And then the Hubble Legacy Field, they discovered 265,000 galaxies. (laughs) Are the stars uncountable? Yep. Just like Jeremiah told us when he didn't have a telescope. And we have geology. The Bible does address geology. You can go to the Grand Canyon today. You can see all these layers in different places on the earth. It's a fact. There are layers in the earth. How the layers got there, that's a different question. No one is around to see them being deposited. Well, the Bible gives us a framework to understand why are we seeing these layers all over the place? Genesis 6, 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. The Bible says in Genesis 6 through 8, there was a worldwide flood. If that actually happened, what would we expect to see on this planet? We'd expect to see sedimentary layers laid down all over the planet, catastrophically by water, and probably filled with fossils because things that were living would have gotten buried, and that's what we see. We see these sedimentary layers all over the planet, filled with billions and billions of fossils. The Bible gives us a framework for that. Quick side note, I lead Grand Canyon tours, not just to show people the canyon, but to talk about the authority of God's Word. I have to back up a second here. It's going to start itself automatically, it looks like. Give me a second here. I'll just let this run and then I'll explain it later because we're going to run out of time. to the Grand Canyon. You've all seen pictures. Come and see the real thing. 
Jay Sigurd here with the Starting Point Project to invite you to come along on one of our Grand Canyon tours where you will be on the top rim of the canyon looking down and you'll also get to be on the Colorado River. And all throughout our trip, we share scientific evidences that there really was a worldwide flood, just like we learned from Genesis 6 through 8. We know there was worldwide flood action, but not always the same way you see here. We want to take you from being in a position where you are praying and hoping that no one asks you about this flood story and Noah's Ark and all that, to a point where you're thinking, please, please ask me. Just learning about the creation theory and being able to really be equipped to defend that theory. A chance to learn a little bit more about just what God's done in the past and uh, His beautiful world that He created. The only explanation for the canyon is really catastrophic water action. Easy to understand, but yet profound. It helps me to articulate what I believe so much better. You'll be so excited about the authority of God's Word, that it can be trusted from cover to cover so that you can be more emboldened when you're graciously sharing the gospel message with those around you. The problem isn't the evidence, because facts don't speak for themselves. What was your favorite part? The dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's unbelievable. You yeah. have to see it in person. It is an amazing place to visit and we want to go on this journey with you, so get a hold of us to learn about the details of our trips, which you can find at thestartingpointproject.com. They're very powerful tours, again, to focus on the authority of God's Word. You will come away knowing the flood thing, it's not a silly story. It actually happened, and one of the best places on the planet to see evidence for it is right there at the canyon. It's a family-friendly trip, super easy. You can get more information from our table, and there's brochures and all that. So if you're interested, I don't want to take up more time talking about that, but if you want to go as a church group, we can talk about that. We have five trips, and there is some room on each of the trips so far, but it's just really cool, and it ties into the talk here. That's why I wanted to throw in there really quick, and you can also get more information from our website. But back to the talk here again real quick. The Bible gives us a framework to properly understand biology. Nehemiah 9.6 says, you give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God is the one who created life, and his fingerprints are all over that as well. And today we have something called the law of biogenesis, which states that life only comes from pre-existing life. It's so consistent, we made a law out of it. We've never, ever, ever seen an exception. God is the one that created life. So why do we teach in a school system 3.8 billion years ago, non-life, dead chemicals came together to form a living cell? It's a whole other topic that I, I speak on. But here's a quote from an evolutionist. He said, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith. Wait a minute, scientists don't have faith. They're in the laboratory proving things, right? No, he's admitting they have faith. And not only is it a faith, it is an unreasonable faith because it goes against everything that we're learning about biochemistry and chemistry and all these things. The more they study it, the more complex of a problem it is getting for them. And then we have Genesis 1.24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Ten times in Genesis 1, God says he created creatures to reproduce after their kind. Can they produce a variety? Yes, wonderful variety, but always within limits. 
Today, dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves can all breed together. Why? Because they're the same general kind of animal. In fact, you can breed a dog and a wolf, and you get a wolf dog. Looks a little bit like the dog, a little bit like the wolf. This is good genetics, and this is what we would expect from Scripture. But what you can't do is breed the dog and the wolf and get an ostrich. <laughs> they don't have genetic information to make beaks and feathers. So yes, you can get a variety, but always within limits. That's what the Bible predicted thousands of years ago, and that's what we're confirming with genetics today. Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is very, very important for life. In fact, every human red blood cell contains about 270 million molecules of hemoglobin carrying oxygen throughout your body. If you had a slight amount less, you'd be dead. What's interesting about that is doctors used to drain blood out of people's bodies when they got sick. It's largely how George Washington died. He got pneumonia, so he goes to the doctor. He goes, oh, this guy's sick, we've got to get that bad blood out of him. They drained some blood. He got sicker, like, wow, this guy's really sick. They drained some more blood. He gets even sicker, like, this guy is so sick. They ended up draining almost a gallon of blood out of him, and he died. Now, we know better today. If they would have taken Scripture seriously, they would have never done that. The reason I have a picture of a barber pole up here... Some of you might even remember, you used to be able to go to the barber to have your blood drained. They called it bloodletting. They would give you a cylinder like that to grasp, cut your arm, drain some blood, wrap a towel around there to help stop the bleeding and absorb some blood. Sometimes they would take the used towels, hang them on the cylinder outside to dry, and the wind would catch it and would wrap around the pole. That's why today barber poles have red stripes. Seriously, free trivia, I won't charge you for that one. But next time you see a barber pole, think about these things that you can share with others. Exodus 15, 26. This is one of my favorites. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, I will put none of these diseases upon thee. This is worth the price of admission this morning. If you haven't seen this before, this is going to blow you away. So, so what's going on here? Okay, backdrop. God creates everything to begin with, and it's perfect. Creates Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're perfect. Adam and Eve sin. They disobey. They separate themselves from God. They get kicked out of the garden. God could have just smashed them and started over. He said, no, I love them too much. I have a plan. And his plan was he was going to send his own son to die on a cross, which included him choosing a group of people through which his son, the Messiah, would be born. He chooses the Hebrew people, Abraham's descendants, who become the Israelites and the Jews. Those are God's chosen people. Well, that's the entire Old Testament is God playing out that plan. The entire Old Testament is also Satan who hates God trying to ruin that plan. So the entire Old Testament is Satan trying to wipe out the Jews because if he can, the Messiah can't come. And God is trying to protect his people. In this passage, Moses is saying, listen to the health practices God is giving us and we won't see the diseases that are affecting the nations around us. But we know from the book of Acts that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He went to Egypt, you. <laughs> now today, if someone goes to a state university, they get a PhD, and then they write some books, you would expect that a lot of the information in those books would come from what they learned at the university. That's just kind of how it works. Well, Moses goes to Egypt, you, and then he writes five books. You probably knew that. Yeah, the first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We should if Moses made it up on his own, and that's what skeptics say. He was an ignorant goat herder, and he just scribbled some stuff down, and now here's another option for a religious book. That's what they believe. Well, let's take a look at his education. 
This is the Ebers Papyrus, written in 1550 BC, contains over 800 magical formulas and remedies for things. One of which is if you got a splinter, you're supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. Modern scientists look at that and they say, yikes, you do not want to do that. It causes tetanus spores, you can get lockjaw, you can get very sick, you could even die. That's the kind of stuff Moses learned and was educated in. So do we see things like that in the Bible? We should if Moses made it up on his own. Let's take a look at what we do see. Moses talked about touching a dead body. Now Today we know about germs and bacteria, and especially with all the COVID stuff. You don't want to touch a dead animal. You could get sick from that. You maybe could even die. This is what Moses wrote in the book of Numbers, chapter 19. He said, whoever touches a dead body will be unclean for seven days. He must wash himself in the water purification on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he'll be clean. Okay, what's this water purification? A few verses earlier, he tells us. He says, the priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet wool, and throw them on their burning heifer or cow. That sounds bizarre. Many of you are old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies. That sounds like something Granny would do in the kitchen, put some possum in the pot and stir it around. She's just doing weird things. That's what this sounds like from the Bible. But modern scientists have looked at that and they say, no, that's not weird at all. That's fascinating, and here's why. These cedar wood and the, and the burning ashes of the heifer or the cow combine to make lye. It's a caustic soda. We also call it soap. <laughs> you touch a dead body, washing with soap would be a good thing. The hyssop plant converts into thiamol, which is isopropyl alcohol. Kills bacteria. You touch a dead body, killing bacteria would come in handy. <laughs> These scarlet wools, like a gritty substance, like an SOS pad in your kitchen, or if you ever used orange goop, get grease out of your hands, it has pumice in it, it's abrasive, that helps. That's what the scarlet wool does. Applying it on the third and the seventh day. Bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you want to wait a few days for everything to dry out, and then you apply this. Wait a few more days for it to dry out, you apply it a second time, and you're considered clean. Modern scientists say that is a great natural remedy if you don't have antibiotics that we use today. Did Moses know anything about bacteria and germ theory and isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is God saying, hey, Mo. <laughs> Some of you get that. You know, write it down. <laughs> and he writes it down. And Moses says, that was so cool. You got anything else? And God says, let me think. He says, yeah, I got another one. So as I close, I'm going to share one other example here. Moses talked about a certain Jewish tradition in Genesis chapter 17. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Why did Moses say the eighth day? He could have said anything. Fifth week, the ninth year, anything. But he said the eighth day. Modern scientists have discovered some very interesting things about blood clotting. Two major things in your bloodstream that are necessary to clot your blood, vitamin K and prothrombin. On a molecular level, there are about two dozen events that have to fire off in proper sequence to clot your blood. You miss one, you're dead. How did that evolve? By accident. Event A has to trigger B, then B triggers C, and C triggers D all the way down the line. You can't evolve that by accident over millions of years because if it's not there, you can't survive. That's a design feature. But back to the bigger level, vitamin K and prothrombin. Scientists have discovered vitamin K develops in a newborn somewhere between days five and seven. That's when it kicks in. Prothrombin looks like this if we graph it, and I will explain the graph. 
The dotted line across the top is the normal level of prothrombin in your body. The numbers across the bottom are days after birth. Scientists have discovered on day one, a baby has 90% of its prothrombin. It's very high. It's not bad at all. But then it drops dangerously low to 20 to um, was it, uh, 30% on days two to five. Not good at all. On day eight, it spikes to 110% of its normal level. It will never be that high again the rest of your entire life, only on day eight. So if you're a baby and you need a surgical procedure, day eight would be the perfect day because for sure you have vitamin K by then and you have more prothrombin than you'll ever have the rest of your life. Did Moses know anything about vitamin K and prothrombin? Obviously not. This is God saying, Mo, write it down. He writes it down. Absolutely amazing. So the Bible passes this test of scientific foreknowledge. In fact, it passes all four tests we didn't have time for, the internal consistency, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, and scientific accuracy. So do Christians have faith that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Yes, we do. But it is an incredibly reasonable faith backed up by so much evidence. And we're just scratching the surface here. In fact, if you would like to believe the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, in the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, <laughs> you got a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> Seriously, if this isn't from God, how did all those writers get all that prophecy right? 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. That's over 8,000 passages. They're probably going to accidentally get a few right if they're making it up, but not every single one, 100% accuracy. Some of them are for our future, but the rest have come true in every minute detail. How'd they get all the history right? How'd they get all the science right before they had microscopes and telescopes? To me, it's very reasonable that this is what it claims to be, the inspired Word of God, cover to cover. We have a five-part series. This is a picture of something called a DVD. It's uh, old school now. Um, so we have some physical DVDs sitting out there, but everything we have is streamable, and it's free. I'll get to that in just a second. So... I've gone super fast to try to make the, the talk fit in uh, evidence why we can be so confident that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Um, our resources, very briefly, everything we have is available on the table, and you can get it online, and here's most of it's free. So we've got 22 streamable uh, sessions, including what you just heard here and a lot of all those other areas of evidence. That's all on in the Bible, a series on the inspiration of the Bible, a bunch of other titles. I'm going to be creating 22 to 30 more. Those will all be free. We also have a an I, um, podcast I just started three weeks ago. There are three episodes out there now. That's free. There's a sign out there for that. You can see where you can find them. Free email newsletter you can sign up at the table or online. A free question of the month article that you can see online or in the newsletter or wherever. A bunch of those. Live stream broadcasts that I've done. We post them on our website. Those are all free. Uh, I also have written three books. Those are available for sale on the table. Um, lots of other stuff, so, but i got to keep moving. And we already know about the Grand Canyon Tour. You can pick up a brochure if you're interested in that, and you can always get more information at our website. So <clears throat> I'm going to close in a second in a word of prayer. The reason I shared all this with you is so that you can memorize all the details and go out and win arguments with people and make them look foolish, right? <laughs> no. See my head? No. <laughs> I wanted you to hear this, and even though you're going to walk out thinking, I, I remember some of it, and then three days later, he's like, I don't remember any of it, but what you will remember is that you can trust the Bible from cover to cover, and that will embolden you to then in turn go out and very 
very graciously share the gospel message with someone, knowing if they bring up all these arguments, what about all the evil in the world today and the violence in the Old Testament, different Bible versions and science has disproven the creation account and on and on, you know there are answers. Even if you don't remember them all, that's fine. You can get back to them. But it won't stop you from sharing the gospel message, which is what they need. They don't necessarily need proof of the flood and all these other things. We can use those things, but what they need is the gospel message. And if they don't see Christ in us, nothing we say is really going to matter. So that's why I came here. That's why I talked 50 million miles an hour. I look forward to maybe seeing you in the lobby. If you have any questions in between services, I'm going to close in a brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that you've given us to look at the authority of your word. I pray for each person here, for those who already have a personal relationship with you. It's not just head knowledge, but they've placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray for them, each one of them, that this week, God, this coming week, bring someone across their path who needs to hear the gospel message, prompt them in their spirit, and allow the Holy Spirit to do all the heavy lifting in the conversation. And then for anyone who's here this morning who is on the fence or skeptical, just unbelievably honored that they came here. This is the perfect place for them to be. Pray that they come back next week too. I pray for them that this would be the day that they would make a decision that maybe, maybe they don't have all the answers and maybe God's a little bit sharper than they are, that they would place their trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and then they have the rest of their entire lives to get answers to some of these intriguing questions. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.